0: When I arrive home, all will be in order. So we shall see, shall we, really? <coughs> Song of Songs, How to Love. Uh, the, uh, I love the um, Dixie Chicks second CD, Fly. Actually, I loved all their um, albums. And I love that fly that went across the... Uh, Staple Centre. Um, on that occasion, no song received more enthusiastic a uh, response that, than "Goodbye, Earl." <laughs> well, it wasn't two weeks after she got married that Wanda started getting abused. She put on dark glasses and long-sleeved blouses and makeup to cover a bruise. Uh, she eventually initiated divorce proceedings, and Earl responded by her into intensive care. Uh, and she and her friend Mary Ann then formed a plan. Uh, they cooked Earl a nice southern meal with black-eyed peas and something more sinister. And when it had done its work, um, wrapped his body in a tarp and dropped it in the lake. At the end of the story, uh, Mary and Wanda are running a roadside stand on Highway 109, selling Tennessee ham and strawberry jam. The disclaimer, the Dixie Chicks do not advocate premeditated murder, but love getting even, wasn't enough to stop the song getting banned on the radio, presumably by men. (laughs) Uh, A while after that, um, I had a student from Southern Africa uh, in um, the prophets class uh, write a paper on gender violence uh, in Judges and Isaiah, And she interwove in this paper, um, biblical study, with accounts of her life at home. She began with an account of homestead life in her grandparents' day. Uh, Her grandfather had had 11 wives. So if you think Elkanah with his two is going a bit far, this is nothing. Uh, Each of the 11 wives had 6 to 10 children. The um, huts uh, of the wives uh, stood in a half moon... Uh, with his in the centre, so he could monitor the family and control what was going on. If another man got angry with him, uh, and he couldn't fight the man, he'd beat one of the wives. When one wife got pregnant, uh, and he thought another man was the father, uh, he beat the woman in front of the other wives, till she aborted. The other wives fled, um, but eventually returned, because they were afraid of wild animals, um, and as the ringleader, the um, grandmother of this, this uh, student was beaten and her collarbone got broken. Her parents were then amongst the first people who came to believe in Christ when Christian missionaries arrived. But you shouldn't, amuse the, uh, you shouldn't assume that the Christianization of that part of Africa totally transformed it. She, when she wrote this paper, had just heard about the death um, of a friend of hers after being beaten by her husband. The story of the Levite's concubine in Judges chapter 19 reminded her of a woman who ran away to her brother's house because her husband beat her. The husband uh, would um, always come to get his wife back and the brother would always surrender the wife because the husband had the right to do what he liked with her as his property. If she'd run back to her parents' home, then that would have been to invite a lecture from her mother on submission to her husband. Eventually, this husband uh, hit the woman on the head with an iron bar, and she died. There's a property understanding of marriage that underlies those kind of attitudes. Uh, You don't get a property understanding of marriage in the Old Testament um, when people say there is, it ain't true. Um, But there obviously is a property understanding of marriage around in cultures. Uh, And one of the things it means is, in that part of Africa at least, was that women have got no right to withhold themselves sexually from their husbands, um, even when the husbands have contracted AIDS or HIV as a result of being promiscuous, so that many of the countless women who've died from AIDS were infected by their husbands. Yesterday at church we had the choir from the Walter Homing home, just two or three blocks from here, which is a kind of shelter uh, for women who have been involved um, with drugs and prostitution and alcohol uh, and jail. Uh, and who uh, come into that place, and one way or another they get converted before, or they get converted there, I'm not quite sure, but, but the choir comes as the most stupendously, amazingly um, Christian group of women who stand there singing, just thinking about it now makes me cry. You see, look at these women, and you know what's in their stories, and you see the light of Christ shining out of their eyes, even at the same time as you can see the marks on their faces of what's happened to them in their lives. And three of them gave their testimonies, and one of them talked about the fact, the way in which her her mother had died when she was eight um, of AIDS. Many of the countless women in Africa and here um, have been infected by their husbands. And um, that student writing that paper then led led, uh, my TA uh, at the time, who was a Korean as it happened, Um, talk about the place of women in society and church in his experience of growing up in Korea. He thinks that Korean culture was once more more egalitarian than it then became uh, in his parents' day, but under Confucian influence, the family came to be thought of uh, in patrilineal terms, and then the church supports that patriarchal tradition very strongly. So if a woman's first child is a girl, Christians may wonder whether she has committed a sin. Marriages are arranged by the uh, couple's parents and their pastor. I mean, you may think the pastor's job here is hard, but just think if you were the marriage... (laughs) (laughs) It's then assumed um, that a woman leaves her parents' family when she marries and she joins her husband's parents' family. The married couple are expected to live uh, in in his parents' house and under their authority, especially if he's the eldest son. And that tradition is seen as an ethical principle And a couple who resisted the expectation, my TA said, uh, would cause a scandal in society worth reporting in the the local newspaper. (coughs) The Church accepts that tradition as part of its emphasis on the duty of uh, respect to parents, though it doesn't um, have any correlative emphasis on the obligation of parents to children. On marriage, a woman is expected to resign her job in order to stay at home in the shared menage, Uh, And the situation, as you can imagine, is a a frequent cause of conflict between the parents and the married couple, especially between the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law. The Church's teaching is that one should be thankful in the context of difficulties of that kind um, and believe that an attitude of thankfulness is the key to resolving difficulties. The situation is, again, as you can imagine, um, easily a cause of conflict between the couple themselves. Uh, it encourages a kind of formalisation of the relationship between the man and the uh, and his wife, rather than the development of a personal relationship. It's a major reason for divorce and for Korean emigration to North America. Okay, can I, next. Can
1: I mm-hmm. well, uh mhm Well, it's not like the.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, I am interested in what the Song of Songs might do for those Christian cultures. Maybe the Korean Christian culture doesn't need it, in which case, praise God. Uh, But there are Christian cultures that do. And that's why the Song of Songs, is. somebody in their post wondered, wonder, well, why have this in the Bible? When you look at the bloody mess the Christian marriages are in, then you can see why the Song of Songs might be in the Bible. I have no idea. How, wh- why the. We don't know the reason why any of the books of the Bible are in the Bible in the sense that we don't have a record of anybody saying, oh, this is an interesting book for the following reason, let's put it in. But if you ask the question, uh, why does the Holy Spirit rejoice that this book is in the Bible, then this it seems to me is the um, connection in which it's significant for now. And I'm obviously assuming then that the. Uh, The important way to understand the Song of Songs is as being literally about the relationship between a a man and a woman, um, and not to interpret it allegorically um, about the relationship between God um, and his people. Um, I'll I'll, I'll say a a little more about that later on in relation to people's questions, but let me just say now with regard to allegorical interpretation. That sometimes allegorical interpretation, that is, taking a scripture to mean something different um, from what it looks uh, on the surface as if it means, um, does derive from an unease about the literal meaning of a text. And you can see that with um, C.S. Lewis's allegorical interpretation of Psalm 137. He doesn't like the idea of rejoicing in the bashing of the babies on the rocks, so he uh, interprets that allegorically uh, with regard to... um, putting down the negative, um, the sinful feelings that lie inside our own heads. <coughs> now, if that, if, uh, if that was the song, that you could imagine then that allegorical interpretation of the Song of Songs might have issued from an unease about the literal meaning of the text. If people were uneasy about sex, then they'd interpret it allegorically. But actually the origin of allegorical interpretation is more complicated than that in general terms, uh, and also in particular with regard to the Song of Songs. Because the problem with the Bi- about the Bible for us isn't so much what it says about the issues that it talks about. It's often that the Bible doesn't talk about the issues, the people, the issues that people think it should talk about. So if you think the Bible is supposed to be a manual about how, rel- how to relate to God... Um, then allegorical interpretation is needed in order to make the Bible say the kind of things that you think the Bible should make the Bible talk about, the kind of things you think it should talk about. Uh, now, with regard to the Song of Songs, that would then help people who are uneasy about sex to uh, be able to uh, take the song in a different way. But the origin of allegorical interpretation of the songs doesn't lie, need not lie in that unease. Um, And I don't have any impression that conservative Christians in general are are in any great need of liberation from sexual repression into the joy of sex. There was a um, a pastor, a member of the board at Fuller, um, I heard say uh, one time, that in order to satisfy the interests of his congregation, he really needed only three Sunday school classes, one on sex, one on the end times, and one on whether there'll be sex in the end times. <laughs> Conservative Christians are as keen on sex as anybody else. Uh, but our presuppositions about God and the Bible don't encourage us to bring the Bible and sex into a relationship except in certain moralistic ways about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And so uh, people's traditional morality may have some effect on the way they give expression to their enthusiasm for sex in a paradoxical way, really. Uh, It's been claimed that the divorce rate amongst conservative Christians in the USA is even higher than among other groups, which you wouldn't have thought could be possible, but that it's so, and that the reason is that conservative Christians often still feel obliged to get married in order to have sex, but the marriages don't then last. Strangely, the liberating effect of the Song of Songs might lie in encouraging conservative Christians to rethink the link of sex and marriage, because the song doesn't link those two. But again, I'll come back to that in a minute. Because I don't mean that the song wouldn't presuppose a link between sex and marriage, which in its own culture is unlikely, as is the case with the question of what Ruth was doing um, on the threshing floor. Um, It's difficult to know whether all these poems, whether you're supposed to understand all these poems as about the same couple, um, I don't think you need that assumption. Uh, certainly, I, don't, I think it's artificial to try to turn the Song of Songs into a story. Um, but uh, whether the songs are all about the same couple, or whether you can imagine them kind of being about different couples, uh, the song surely does point to there being a man and a woman whose sexual involvement um, belongs in the context of an exclusive one-to-one relationship that's so all consuming that you'd expect them to reckon it was it, was, um, life, it would be lifelong. And incidentally, that, that links with the question uh, that several people asked about whether this might be Solomon. Uh, the wisdom in the Song of Songs is certainly Solomonic. They, that's what the opening verse says. Solomon is the guy who stands for great wisdom. To say something is Solomonic is to say it's hugely wise. But it's difficult, well no, it's not difficult, it's totally impossible to imagine the Solomon about whom you read in the Book of Kings in a relationship like this one that you read about in the Song of Songs. He is caught by that patriarchal understanding about um, and and kind of business relationship and political understanding of of the marriage relationship which I talked about earlier on. Certainly the process whereby the community uh, in Israel would have come to treat the Song of Scripture would involve the presupposition that the sexual relationship belongs in the context of marriage. Of course it would. Though, as I've said to you before, I'm sure, whenever a professor says certainly or of course, it means he's got no evidence. (laughs) But the circumstantial evidence is strong. There's a famous uh, warning in the uh, Talmud um, about singing the Song of Songs in the banquet hall as if it were an ordinary piece of music. Well, the fact that the rabbis are saying what a terrible thing that would be if anybody ever did it proves that people were doing it, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't say it. Uh, in contrast, often people do say that the reason why the Song of Songs was accepted into the canon was because it had already been accepted a- a- allegorically. There is no evidence for that fact. As I say, there's no evidence for the basis of any, for anything to do with things being accepted into the canon. Uh, We we do know that the Jewish community came to interpret the Song of Songs, allegorically, as the story of the relationship between God and Israel. So chapters 1 and 2 are about the Exodus, and chapters 3 and 4 are about the time of David, and chapters 5 and 6 are about the exile and whatnot. Uh, And if you think that sounds implausible, then you're totally right. It it is implausible. Uh, But there's no evidence that uh, an interpretation of that kind had already come to the Song uh, before it came to be scripture. But some people who listen to the Song of Songs presumably noticed that either this couple were not yet married or they had a very odd kind of relationship that involves the, um, an upside-down version of the practice of living together we- without being married. Because these, if they're married, aren't living together. So that's weird. Um, my own assumption is that the Song takes for granted that this couple are on their way to marriage. Um, they haven't yet consummated the marriage, but they clearly are pretty interested in sex. Uh, but it's significant that the Song of Songs itself is not interested in marriage, except in that picture of a wedding procession um, in Chapter 3 and the description of the uh, woman as the bride uh, in Chapter 4. And one of the things that that presupposes is this. Um, one of the uh, frameworks within which sex needs to be understood is the framework of marriage. But that's not the only uh, one uh, in, in the Song of Songs culture or in ours. Marriage is about lots of things other than sex. Indeed, there's food for thought in that joke about marriage being when two people stop having sex. Marriage is, for instance, a way of imaging God in the world. Here are two people who are markedly different from each other, the opposite to each other, who make a lifelong commitment to each other that creates something bigger than the sum of their parts and that persists no matter what pressures drive them apart. That's one thing about marriage. Marriage is an institutionalized legal community structure for a lifelong one-on-one relationship. Marriage is an arrangement in the context of which people can have sex so that within it, children can be born in the context of um, that settled relationship and can be brought up and educated and looked after. Marriage is a device whereby a woman moves from being owned and protected by one man, her father, to being owned and protected by another man, her husband. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Even nowadays, quite often you say, in a wedding service. As if dad owned her and now he's passing her on to this other guy. Now, marriage is all those things. When we think kind of romantically about marriage, and I'm keen on thinking romantically about marriage, we think about the importance of the one-to-one total, <coughs> excuse me, total friendship um, intimacy of the relationship. But marriage involves a lot more than that. And we could have those other things um, a- a- about um, a context in which people, uh, children can be brought up and so on without having marriage. But marriage provides a way of having them in our culture um, as in others. The song of songs is not concerned with any of those. It's simply concerned with sexual love and the happiness, and the fear, and the anxiety, and the fulfillment that are involved in it. Now, there's very little indication elsewhere in the Old or the New Testament of a link uh, between the happiness, and the fear, and the anxiety, and the fulfillment of sexual love between those and marriage. Usually, when the Bible talks about marriage, that's not what it's talking about. Uh, The Genesis account of the origin of marriage, people like to interpret romantically. There's this man who's on his own. He's alone. And God creates somebody to be with him. Nah. He needs somebody to help him work the soil. And somebody who will be be able to to bear children, which is the one thing he can't do on his own. The... um, Roland Murphy, in this commentary on the Song of Songs, uh, rather a good commentary, an interesting fact fact alongside that he is himself um, a celibate, a monk. Um, He observes that the interpretation of the Song of Songs as portraying the relationship between God um, and uh, the people of God, he says, that understanding, that allegorical understanding, held sway in the Church from late antiquity until relatively modern times, and continues even today to find some support. Now you, now you can get the impression from that remark of his, that that understanding of the relationship uh, as um <coughs> excuse me, as an allegory of the relationship between God uh, and his people, had now been generally abandoned. And that may be true in the rarefied um, groves of the university and the seminary, but it's still the way that most ordinary people understand the Song of Songs. Perhaps paradoxically, <coughs> even in some Christian circles that are enthusiastic about sex, Mark, do you think you can get me some water, please? Mark, do you, you think you can get me some water, some water? you know, wada? I blame that stupid, crunge that that thing. What was it? Yeah, oh, tetra, whatever it's called. Yeah, I, I've never coughed like this in a class before. It's either that thing or talking about sex that ruins your life. (laughs) Uh, Even in some Christian circles that are enthusiastic about sex, an interpretation of the Song of Songs as as referring to the love relationship of God and the believer remains alive and well. And it's important uh, to continue to urge that that is a meaning imposed upon the song. The song itself offers no hint that the poems have got anything to do with our love relationship with God, or of God's love relationship with us. Um, now, uh, people in their postings wondered whether that allegorical understanding uh, might be justified on the basis of the fact that elsewhere, um, Scripture does portray the relationship between God and people by analogy with marriage. But that justification doesn't work. I've already suggested that the Song of Songs itself is not concerned about marriage. <coughs> um Conversely, there's no hint anywhere else in Scripture that we have a relationship with God that on our side has the dynamics of a sexual relationship. Certainly not the kind of egalitarian relationship uh, that the Song of Songs talks about. The kind of love that our love for God resembles is like the love of adult children for their parents or the love of subjects for their rulers or the love of students for their teachers. That's a relationship that is or that can be characterized by warmth and affection and mutual self-sacrifice and commitment. But there's a disparity of status and power between those different parties that mean that they don't have the dynamics of the kind of love that the Song of Songs talks about. I mean, maybe it would be a bit odd if we thought we had a relationship of the Song of Songs kind with the Holy One. And the scriptures don't suggest that we do. One of the tests for allegorical interpretation is: if you're going to interpret something allegorically, then you shouldn't um, <coughs> uh, claim that something, that some th- claim something, or teach something on the basis of a text understood allegorically that you can't demonstrate to be the teaching of Scripture on the basis of some other text that is liter- When you understand it literally. And what I'm suggesting is that the allegorical interpretation of the the Song of Songs fails that test. The Song of Songs doesn't speak about a love that involves self-sacrifice and commitment. And the scriptures never speak about our emotional relationship with God in terms of passionate love. Love for God is about commitment. The Song of Songs portrayal of a relationship is misleading when applied to God. Love's shafts are fiery, flames of Yahweh, says chapter 8. If human love reflects God's love in this respect, that's pretty frightening. Other parts of scripture imply that God is always reaching out for us and wanting to be in a relationship with us, like a parent in a to children. God is not like the beloved whom you're not sure you'll be able to find. I wanted to people blessed about the two passages that I assume are... Um, uh, descriptions of dreams um, that 's what I take them to be um, but but they um, do presuppose a, an odd experience about the nature of the relationship and I wonder whether for some people at least looking for an emotional love relationship with God is a kind of form of displacement, looking for God um, looking to God for something that actually is supposed to appear in our human relationships now. God often has to just deal with the fact that we don't, we're not very interested in looking at things his way, um, and so he has to look at things our way. So maybe God is prepared to live with the displacement on the part of people, particularly who don't have other human beings with whom to enjoy this love relationship. But there are dangers in that displacement. Maybe we're avoiding the human relationships that are designed to be the context in which those human capacities are, um, are realised. Maybe because human relationships are more fraught with risk and vulnerability. Getting it off on God provides us with a cheap form of intimacy. In the song, there are pains about this relationship. There are pains that issue uh, from other people's attitudes and reasons that come from inside the individuals. Um, in our own relationships... The um, talking about other people's attitudes may be be externalizations of our own hesitations that lie inside us as individuals. The tension between seeking intimacy and fearing intimacy. Maybe we're avoiding the form of love that's appropriate to a relationship with God, that is, the acceptance of sacrifice and the making of sacrifice. Our love for God is more about letting God make a sacrifice for us and committing ourselves to trusting God and living for God. It's more about that than about woozy feelings. I don't know whether the allegorical understanding of the Song of Songs um, uh, that was very uh, prevalent in the medieval period was appropriate for medieval celibates, Uh, but what I want to suggest is that the women and the men in the conservative cultures to which I've referred need to avoid evading... Thanks, Matt. The uh, implications of the literal meaning of the song so if you were uh, if you'd be if you were somebody living in the south along the lines of I described just now um, or somebody living in Africa along the lines that I was describing just now or somebody living in the kind of context um, of the way things might have been in Korea a generation ago. What does the Song of Songs tell people in that kind of context about a sexual relationship? The song opens with shocking directness, doesn't it? May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. the, The poems yank the readers straight inside the physical relationship between two people. Uh, And the song is like proverbs in that, oftentimes, it's not saying human beings, human life should work out like this. It's simply saying human life is like that, and readers better be better own the fact. The poem opens with the words of the woman. Notwithstanding the fact that the heading says that this is the Song of Songs, which is Lishlomo, which is Solomon's. It's striking that that phrase. This is a piece of Solomonic wisdom. That phrase introduces poems in which a woman f- speaks first and speaks longest, and often takes the initiative in the relationship. The uh, uh, the, the NIV translation used to. Uh, you c- you can tell whether it's the man or the woman speaking through the poems by the uh, because of the gendered nature uh, of Hebrew language. And so you can tell whether it's the man speaking or the woman speaking. And the NIV used to help you along with that by giving you some headings that said lover and beloved. Uh, But that presupposes uh, an active and a passive um, relationship between the two, which is inappropriate to the way the poems actually work. The poems actually point readers towards a more egalitarian understanding of the relationship. They don't um, imply any assumption that the man has to make the approaches or that the man has to set the pace in the relationship. The woman is free to take an initiative, and the man is free to expect that. Both of them express appreciation and longing for each other. The poems don't put a priority on the physical over the relational, but nor of the relational over against the physical. They assume that the two belong together, like body and spirit. They do reflect the fact that, the, that physical appearance may be more important to a man than to a woman. Um, the man spends more time talking about the woman's appearance than the woman spends talking about his appearance. Uh, and at least they may invite um, a woman to be aware of that. Um, she can make the most of it if she wishes, but she might also need to be wary of it. The presence of the the song in Scripture implies that the kind of relationship that it celebrates might be significant for people in general and not just for young people on their way to marriage. And one reason for that might be in uh, the song that was a hit a few years ago, um, Everybody's Searching for Intimacy. Everybody's Hurting for Intimacy. So the song is significant for people like Married couples with their focus on their children and their work. Middle-aged people whose children now have got children of their own. People whose spouses died. And in Western culture, significant for people who've, now, people <coughs> who've stayed single. Or people who've divorced. Or somebody whose spouse is handicapped. There's a capacity on the part even of middle-aged people and older people to fall in love again when their marriage has gone stale or they've divorced. There's nothing time-limited about falling in love. Everybody's searching for intimacy, said that song. Actually, here in California, of course, everybody is avoiding intimacy. That's not to to deny that at some level people are longing for it, but but the problem is that people, as the song says, are also hurting for it. Uh, I was being um, rude, critical... Once, over at a dinner party, uh, with people along uh, about about people along these lines, and a friend of mine who was then in the PhD program in the School of Psychology, but is now a therapist, uh, protested on the basis of the fact that half of the people I was talking about have been brought, brought up in broken homes, and are, as she put it, disabled for intimacy. There's another great country song, uh, or no, that that one isn't a great country. There is a great country song called Nobody Love, Nobody Get Hurt. Um, It it gets its title from uh, the the words that were allegedly written out uh, by the would-be robber um, of a 24-hour supermarket um, who meant to put on his notice Nobody Move, Nobody Get Hurt, but instead wrote Nobody Love, Nobody Get Hurt. (coughs) nobody love, nobody get hurt. People are in no position to take the risk of loving. And the Song of Songs invites people to summon up the strength to take the risk. Maybe the existence of the poems and scripture suggests that taking the risk is a good thing. Or maybe it's just illustrating how that's what happens. And one reason why it needs to be owned is that if people don't own these feelings, the feelings may catch them out as they find expression in inappropriate ways of the kind that Proverbs describes. Falling in love when you're not in a position to do so, or with somebody with whom it's inappropriate to fall in love. The song gives expression to intrinsic human needs. It presupposes the human need for loving recognition and acceptance, for the sense of being special, which makes it more possible to accept yourself. <coughs> the girl describes herself as darkened by the sun but pretty. But she's okay about herself because she's loved. She's only a common wild flower, she says. But to him she is a lovely flower against the background of weeds. He's not an impressive tree compared with the giant redwoods. But as far as she's concerned, he provides shade and produces lovely fruit. They're just an ordinary couple, but their love turns them into a prince and a princess for the day. The song invites us, as its readers, to recognise that relationships are always on the way and that they continue to involve risk. They can't be taken for granted. This couple do spend much of their time in ecstatic enjoyment of each other's presence, but they also spend much time in pained grief at separation from each other. Separation that makes them feel ill. They long for meeting. They seek each other anxiously. She doesn't know where she can find him. She can only dream of their being able to be together. She dreams of missing him or losing him, of her dreams turning into nightmares. He seems to have disappeared. Is he off with somebody else? There's an if-only about the relationship caused by the need to observe society's constraints. She still wants him uh, to make her the most valuable thing in the world. She's got a passionate, jealous love for him that's as fierce as death, as strong as shield. Surely he won't be able to resist it. Vast floods couldn't quench these fiery flames that her love flashes. Now, experience suggests that this is not true of every passionate love. People do fall out of love. You can't control love. You can't control whether another person falls in love with you. You can't make yourself fall out of love with somebody. And yet nevertheless, the poems talk about not arousing love until the right moment. So apparently to some extent, we can control whether love gets aroused. Yet the song also talks about having your heart captured. They recognise that one person may overwhelm another person, whether the second person wanted it or not. The poems keep asking for love not to be aroused before its time. But they themselves arouse love in a way that for many readers may be before its time. They also raise the question whether it's possible to rekindle love when the flame seems to have gone. uh, In a way that fits with that exhortation in Proverbs chapter 5. People do find security in a love relationship that leads to marriage. But but once they've got that security, they may come to take it for granted. They may imperil it in various sorts of ways. Part of the thrill of the not-yet-married relationship is its not yetness the excitement of being on a journey. Before Kathleen and I got married, she, and she would drive up here from um, Corona del Mar and she'd get to the, uh, traffic, the, Orange Grove, um, the traffic lights on the Orange Grove ramp um, just by our house and she'd always call me, say, I'm just taking you on to Orange Grove. And she was excited and I was excited. We don't have that now because we live together, I'm pleased to say. <laughs> and yet part of, there's a thrill about the not-yet-married relationship that lies in its not yetness the excitement of being on a journey. And that's also one of the attractions of having an affair. So there's a sense in which couples need not to take each other for granted and need to see themselves as still on the way. One image in the poems uh, is the image of wanting to get away from everybody else, and couples need that. The first time I gave a, a lecture on the Song of Songs, uh, this kind of—I um, mean, th- this lecture has changed somewhat over the time. But the first time I talked about it uh, in a class like this, there was a man in his thirties in the back over there who rather scornfully suggested that I was taking these expressions of teenage feelings too seriously. But then, in the discussion uh, in the middle of the class, I later heard um, he had said he, he he granted that he'd said this because he was uncomfortably aware that his marriage no longer had the spark of the Song of Songs. And he knew knew that I was raising the question uh, whether he needed to have a vision for rekindling love. And subsequently, there were some women who wrote papers about the Song of Songs. Um, And one of them uh, was somebody who'd found herself getting attracted to another man, and that was making her try to rekindle love in her relationship with her husband. And she was succeeding in getting a response! well of course she was I mean if you were the guy come on (laughs) one of the other women who wrote this paper was a woman who was still single she was um, well into middle age but uh, uh, had always been single and thinking about the Song of Songs had made her revisit the great love of her life and to do some more coming to terms with the fact that that relationship came to an end Uh, and somehow to find hope for that part of her And the third woman who wrote a paper on this um, had been given a new vision or hope for her sexual relationship with her husband. Um, She'd been abused as a teenager. She'd never been at ease about sex. But the song came to her somehow uh, as a gospel text, as a promise about God's vision for us. And who knows how it'll ever be realized, if ever at the resurrection or whether whether at all. But in some sense, she knew it would be realized. Um, and she reminded me of an aspect um, of my experience with my handicapped wife, Anne, who was still alive when, at that point when this, that woman wrote that story, but that, that paper. When Anne was first diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was at seminary, um, a pastor invited us to live with the comment that was once made to Jesus at a wedding, You have kept the good wine till last. And our experience over the years have been that Anne had lost more and more of her mobility and her mental abilities. And I didn't know, I, I, I still don't know, what that pastor's words might mean. And yet I know that somehow they're true. You've kept the good wine to last. And not just in the slightly trivial sense that everything will be okay in heaven. Um, <coughs> and the reflecting on all that in the last years of Anne's life. Um, made me reflect on the way in which I tried to let myself uh, feel the warmth of feelings for Anne that I had once felt. Which was painful because I could never know whether there was any response from her. But it still felt felt like a good thing to do. I think that if um, Christian communities like those ones I talked about at the beginning, uh, read the Song of Songs and thought about it and let it influence their lives then it might um, revolutionise some aspects of their life together. Well, for a few minutes I um, suggest now that you talk to one another a bit about that and what you might like to do is to uh, talk about what you think about those five understandings of the Song of Songs that I laid out for you to read before you actually did your reading um, and uh, talk about whether one or other of them you think is more plausible. So i talk to one another for two or three minutes. Um, no, page um, Page 101. Some of the um, things out of the postings, but are, are there any um, any things that people want to say out of what I said just now? Um, somebody said, "Okay, what do I think about these five, these six, well, these five theories?" Um, so I've uh, indicated that um, I think that while the idea of um, the nature of marriage, as it was in Israel, um, and the nature uh, and the uh, nature of the relationship between God and His people, can be mutually illuminating, um, as in Hosea and Isaiah, uh, as well as in Ephesians in the New Testament. Um, the Song of Songs doesn't really work with that because it's got a quite different sort of understanding of the uh, man-woman relationship from the one that would be assumed in the context of um, uh, marriage in which the man is the uh, a leader and the woman is the follower. Uh, the idea that the songs celebrate the marriage of the god, <coughs> excuse me, the gods, <coughs> or the marriage of priest, priest and princess, a uh, priest and priestess, um, has plausibility, kind of out of the context, but doesn't work in the context, uh, in um, in the context of Israelite religion. Um, the um, emphasis on the songs as simply celebrating sexual love. Uh, For instance, in Phyllis Tribble's God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality, um, clearly I'm sympathetic um, to, though not to the exclusion of the other two. Um, Child's The Song of Songs brings sexual love into the context of wisdom, um, and Bart brings it into the context of the covenant. In Charles' case there, you've got particularly what you could call a canonical interpretation of the Song of Songs. Um, And uh, in both cases, you've got, as I've said in the middle there, the song excluding a profane view of love. That is the idea that God and sex have got nothing to do with each other. They've got nothing to do with each other within the person of God. But in terms of uh, God's relationship with us and God's expectations of us and our lives before God, um, then you can't take a profane view of love. The assumption that what you do in terms of love and sex has nothing to do with God, and Bart makes that point by emphasizing a link between the songs and Song of Songs and Genesis 2. Uh, the Song of Songs is an extended commentary on Genesis 2, which I used to think was a good remark, but I now don't, as I've said to you, because I think he's wrong in his interpreta- interpretation of Genesis 2. But I think um, it's more like the song is more like an extended commentary on that paragraph from Proverbs chapter 5. I like that quote, though. It is almost incredible that this should be found so unreservedly in the Bible. The Song of Songs is one long description of the rapture, the unquenchable yearning, the restless willingness and readiness with which both partners in this covenant hasten towards and encounter. We may well ask where the authors found the courage to treat the matter in this way, speaking so bloodily of eros, and not being content merely with the restrained and and in its own way central reference to marriage and posterity. And that fits with several um, things that several people said in their quotes, uh, in, their, in their postings, wanting to know what the answer to that question was. But Bart wisely is not answering his question. We do not know. It simply is there like that. But note that he talks in terms of the word eros. Several people talked about agape um, and chesed. And all those words are irrelevant. Um, the, the word philia in Greek comes nearer. Achavah, the ordinary Greek, uh, Hebrew word for love, is, is okay, certainly. Um, this isn't talking about chesed, uh, and it's not talking about agape. Um, it's talking about eros uh, in Greek terms. Um, and how astonishing that... Uh <coughs> how, 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 how noteworthy that it's, this is the only place where it comes out but how extraordinary that it comes out at all. And both those facts about the place of the Song of Songs in Scripture are significant. Um, Then Francis Landy, the song is a muted celebration of love that recognizes that it can't take you back to the Garden of Eden, Um, as um, Phyllis Tribble is a bit inclined to think that it can. Um, In the song, Paradise is limited by the fallen world. Death is undefeated. Society imposes shame on the lovers. Time inevitably separates them. The ideal harmony of I am am my beloved's and my beloved is mine disappears on the last appearance of the formula I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. The echo of God's words to Eve and to your husband shall be your desire and he shall rule over you is very striking. Uh, And then just that note at the end that I derive from an SIP, an African-American student in the School of Psychology, Um, because I hadn't noticed that stuff uh, about the uh, way in which the Hebrew word for beautiful has always tended to be, it's often been translated fair, uh, which implies that uh, being fair-skinned is um, a natural expression for beauty, that light skin colour is the ideal. Um, And the link between, is it I am black and beautiful, or black but beautiful, or is it not black at all? Is it um, sunburned? Is that making sure that is that an ethnic bias in making sure there's no reference to uh, no positive reference to black being beautiful in the Song of Songs? Um, tricky questions about how ethnic bias can come out in translations that that verse neatly illustrates. Oh, the sister-brother uh, sister language, it simply is a thing, a, w- a way um, of speaking in the culture, as you can see from the uh, Egyptian uh, love song. So it's simply a way of speaking, um, and, and so it facilitates. So, so there's nothing kind of mystical or significant, I think, in the background. I wasn't sure what this meant. I've heard lots of preachers and pastors speak very specifically about sexual intimacy on these passages. I understand there's quite a bit of understanding to be gained from intimacy, but it sure seems like there's a ton of asegesis when these texts are preached. Am I missing something, or do I just need to start reading more poetry in my spare time? Um, Can anybody, not necessarily that person if they don't want to speak, but what kind of asegesis do you hear when people preach on the song? I'm thrilled to hear that people preach on the Song of Songs. But it, when they do, what kind of esegesis do you hear?
1: Mm-hmm. There's only one that I've heard, but it, it's like, in my little world pretty famous, is Tommy Nelson song of songs teaching that's every, he makes every single thing in here speak exactly to some element of a relationship and walks you through dating and engagement and marriage.
0: And it's oh, okay. all
1: like a fire, I mean, it's like all one-to-one correspondence of what it uh,
2: to like dating,
0: relationships, things today. But it's not bad, but it's not necessarily there. But well, it's actually, yeah, okay, thank you, yeah. yeah <coughs> Sorry? Does anyone
2: else disagree with that? or is that Sort of a similar experience in mine. I've heard like um, reference to Catch for Us the Little Foxes being something about finances and marriage. <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, okay, yeah. which Which reminds me, I mean, in general, in, in general um, uh, allegorical interpretation is fine um, if if it's not avoiding, that is making the scripture teach a lesson which it doesn't teach, which is what's going on there yeah. um, <laughs> that's fine uh, as long as you're not avoiding the literal meaning of the text because you don't like the literal meaning of the text um, and and as long as the thing that you are teaching on the basis of an allegorical interpretation is something which you have other grounds for reckoning to be true, and I mean clearly that's a wise, you know, it's a wise thing to make sure that you don't get into financial messes. Yep. Yeah. mm Okay, in the last quarter hour or so, we're going to do this. I've got here. I'm going back to Proverbs. I've got here a play based on eight characters in Proverbs: uh, Lady Wisdom, the Simple Youth, the Gossip, the Adulteress, um, and so on. Uh, so I need to ask some people who will take some parts. I've got four copies, so I need two people sitting next to each other who'll be willing just to sit there and read some parts. Are you volunteering? Good on you. Will you help her? Okay, so you can be Lady Wisdom and the simple youth between you. Um, And here's the Gossip and the Adulteress, which I think I need some men for that, really. Um, Will you two be the Gossip and the Adulteress? Um, And then we need a Satisfied Husband um, and uh, a Drunkard. So we obviously need two girls for that. Okay. Uh, And then finally, a Lady Folly and the Sluggard. (coughs) Um, <coughs> who'd like to be Lady Folly and the Sluggard? Okay, you, you need to.
2: Oh my God! Oh. <laughs> Susan.
0: <coughs> so um, maybe it be, uh, you need to project yourself. So uh, read it straight out. Just uh, go for it. You, I haven't got a copy now, so go for it. Go.
3: wisdom. My parents were sacrificing a lot to send me to university. My father gave me much advice. He told me to remember his instruction and not to forsake my mother's teaching. He told me there would be many choices. He said I would see many lifestyles. He's right. They're here.
1: I like talking about people. Wherever I go, there is strife. Because That's because I enjoy telling the truth about people. I make a point of separating friends. Once they know the truth about each other, they shouldn't be friends after all. I am the gossip. I'm the wayward wife with beguiling words. I seduce. My husband has a huge belly that falls over his bill. I ignore the covenant we made because I cannot stand him. I have found other friends, exciting friends. They love death. I know the path and the dance that leads to death. I cultivate smooth speech. My lips drip with honey. Come, youths and real men give me your strength. Let's enjoy a wayward life together. Come, let my seductive words convince you of the pleasure of life with me. Come, let my smooth talk lead you where I know you really want to go.
3: Yes, her lips drip with honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but the way of death she advocates is bitter as gall. In the end, she turns on her lovers with actions and words sharper than I'm what you would call the satisfied husband. I have a happy marriage, mainly because my wife works so hard at it. I admit that.
0: I'm the husband
3: of the Proverbs 31 wife. She consistently amazes me. Actually, I'm amazed she chose me. I do not deserve her, and everybody knows it. you know the proverb that says, he who finds a good wife receives a blessing from the Lord? Well, the Lord has blessed me and blessed me for years with this woman. Let me tell you about her and about our life together. My wife truly has a noble character. The basis of her character is that she fears the Lord. Together, we worship and obey the God of Israel. All our life together, she has brought me good. Never has she brought me harm or shame. My total confidence is friend. I like a drink. It's when I'm alone, when everything is quiet, that I see strange things and my mind imagines confusing things. That's when I really need another drink. I like drinking so much that when I get in a fight, I don't even know I've been hit. You have your nice house and your big car and your good job, but are you happy? I say you're a hypocrite. I'll laugh in your face and mock you. I have my bottle here and it's all I need. Yeah, I'm happier than you are.
2: Hey, simple youth. (laughs) I call out to you. What's the value of discipline, I ask you? Nothing. Every person puts on trousers one leg at a time. There's no difference between us. None. You know me. I'm at the door of my house, my big house. I don't like my neighbor, Lady Wisdom. We happen to reside in the same neighborhood then, top of the hill. She acts as if she's the only elite, but I'm elite too. I call out to all all that my way is the best. The easy way is the best way. I call out to all who are simple to come to me. I have special favors for those who like judgment. Come up to my house. I'll really show you how to live. Laugh at how hard others work and how much effort they exert. And for what? For nothing. Follow my way and be rich. I know how to get rich quick. I know how to win the lottery. Look at my big house. I'll show you how stolen water is sweet to the taste, and food eaten in secret is delicious.
3: <laughs> oh, I hate all who speak with such pride and arrogance. Her speech is perverse. Her behavior is that of a scoundrel and villain, For she winks, motions with her hands, and plans, plans evil. Wherever Lady Folly goes, she stirs up dissension. I'm Slothful the sluggard. It's eight o'clock.
4: Too early to get up. I don't care about getting money. I like easy life. I like to go to KFC. I certainly don't like working on the farm during the That that hot work. I prefer first sleeping. Once I had a job at it. they were right along the way, but my boss fired me and said I was like vinegar to his teeth and smoke to his eyes. I crave a big car. I need a big car. I deserve a big car. Life is terribly unfair to me that I don't have one. So often my way seems to be blocked with thorns. Oh, whoa. Life is
3: terribly unfair to me. <laughs> Truly, as uh, the door turns on its hinges, slugger turns on his bed. Go to the aunt the ways of the aunt be wise.
1: I think it's my duty in life to repeat a matter over and over throughout the town. After all, people should know the truth about their friends and the neighbors, don't you think? Sometimes I betray confidence, but then people really should know what's happening, don't you think? I am the gossip, and I do my job.
3: Truly, the power of death and of life resides in the tongue. Gossip spreads death, but my mouth
1: So I dress up and serve the crowd. I go to the street corners. I go downtown. I'll speak you in public and call your name again and again. Let my words captivate you. I know you can walk on, on hot coals. Your feet will not scorch. Will not be scorched. Who will ever know if you, if we sleep together? Your wife is as, as dense as a door doorpost, and my husband <laughs> is away all the time.
3: The man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever commits adultery destroys himself. His life from then on will be filled with blows and disgrace. His companion becomes sh- shamed. The jealous husband will never be his friend or business associate. No amount of money can repair what adultery takes from a marriage.
4: You know what I'm really good at? Tearing down things others build.
3: I like the easy
4: way. Vroom! It's gone. <laughs> <laughs> takes no time at all. But I can go back to sleep. Yeah, I like deep sleep. You know, I like sleeping better than eating. Yeah, better than eating. Sometimes I'll be eating and then won't even bring my fork to my mouth. It takes too much effort. Wow. Harvest is such a bore. I refuse to plow my father's field. He can do it himself. He was born to be a farmer. He does work I don't enjoy. See these hands? Poverty will come on me like a robber.
3: But I don't. At the end, sluggard, your life will end with a groan. (laughs) You'll wake up one day and realize how worthless your life has been. You'll say how I hate discipline, how my heart spurns correction. I have come to the brink of utter ruin, and everybody knows it. They've been laughing at me for years.
2: Lots of times more people
1: need to be involved in a quarrel. After all, it concerns more people than just... Going until everybody has had his or her say. I know I'm for equality. I talked about my brothers, too. After all, I am the gossip. I do my
2: job well. I like your attitude, gossip. We can be friends because I like to hear all the dirt on people. I've heard that your mother is very bitter. She says she is sorry she gave birth to you. <laughs> you is like living with a constantly dripping water pipe. But I like you. Let's wander all over town and eat like pigs.
3: (laughs) I'm the drunkard. Let me tell you my story. I have so much woe. I have so much sorrow. Just give me space or I'll fight you. I'm used to fights. See these bruises? Look at my eyes. They'll tell you that I can drink any one of you under the table. Yeah, we'll see who can linger over wine or the hard stuff the longest. Drunkard, You have rejected me for years. You have spurned my call and my rebukes to you over the years. So when calamity overtakes you as it surely will, when it sweeps you like a whirlwind, you will be devastated. Then you will look for me, but I will hide from you. You You will not find me. You have hated knowledge and do not choose to fear the Lord, and so you will eat the fruit of your own schemes and die. Hey guys, I listen to all of you. I see your lifestyles. I'm making Thank you, Lady Wisdom, for the invitation to your banquet. I accept. I want to learn your ways. To all of you, I say this. Life offers you a choice between wisdom and folly. I urge you with all power in me to choose my instruction instead of silver. Value my knowledge rather than the choices of of gold.
2: Oh, simple youth. I'll show you the easy way. Simple youth.
4: Why work?
1: Simple youth. Ah, let's go have a drink. <laughs> simple youth. People will talk about you if you go to her banquet.
3: Ah, simple youth. The wisdom I give you is more precious than rubies. Nothing you can possibly desire compares with my gift of wisdom. In me reside counsel and sound judgment. I give understanding and power. By me and me alone, rulers make just laws and kings reign. By me, noble rule the earth with me are enduring riches and honor i love those who love me those who seek me find me yes i love those who love me those who
0: seek me find me thank you um th- that's something um not i didn't i didn't create um it's uh, it's something that uh i'll send you the link it t- it says at the top here is um Uh, It was done um, by a guy called Robin Gallagher Branch at uh, a college in Kansas. Uh, I think it's clever the way in which he's collected from different parts of Proverbs what it's got to say on the various topics, and then put them more, uh, uh, but also um, uh, updated them so you can see how they work in our kind of world, and then interwoven them. So it does something not the same by means as what I was asking you to do in the preparation for today. Um, but another way at having a go at the, the tricky thing about Proverbs is that it goes on and on and on about different topics without um, linking them to one another. And he has collected material on different topics and turned them into character studies, which I think, as I say, is really quite clever. Um, I'll send you the link to that uh, in case anybody wants it. Um, <coughs> but now I shall go and make some tea, and I'll see some of you in a little while, and the rest of you, rest of you next week.